Welcome to a special edition of Museum Chat Live. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. In the spring of 2020, we began to offer history lectures through our virtual museum lecture series live on YouTube. Now, with over 20 lectures, we're happy to bring the lecture audio to the podcast format so that more people can enjoy these fascinating stories. If you want to catch the lectures in full, take a gander at our YouTube channel. You'll find us under St. Catherine's Museum. We will release most of the 20 lectures over the next few weeks, and as we add more lectures to YouTube, so too will they eventually appear here on the podcast. We hope these lectures provide a bit of historical joy and also spark imagination and exploration into our city's rich history. More lectures are headed your way this fall. For details, please visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Today's lecture was, and still is, quite relevant to our lives today. On May 12, 2020, our Curator and Supervisor of Historical Services, Kathleen Powell, delivered a lecture about the Spanish influenza pandemic, along with a bit about the exhibit that the museum produced about the Spanish flu in 2018. Enjoy the lecture. For this talk, I'm going to start with a quick primer about uh, influenza and the Spanish influenza in particular, and then I'm going to circle back and talk a little bit about early Canadian public health and the St. Catharines experience and the uh, response to the Spanish flu locally. So let's talk about what is influenza. Here's a quick primer on the flu, in case you were lucky enough to uh, have avoided catching it all of these years. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, influenza, most commonly known as the flu, is a respiratory illness that is caused by the influenza virus, obviously. Uh, usually it infects the throat, nose, and lungs and can range from mild to severe. Uh, as opposed to a common cold, most flu attacks come on relatively suddenly and can spread from person to person through infected bodily fluids, especially through coughing and sneezing. If you have the flu, you might have the following symptoms. I don't think this is a big surprise to anyone. Sometimes fever, cough, sore throat, runny nose, stuffy nose, body aches, headache, chills, fatigue, and sometimes diarrhea and vomiting. There are four types of influenza. Influenza A, B, C, and D. Most seasonal influenza is A or B. Uh, influenza A can also be divided down to subtype, and that's where the H and the N subtypes come in. And these are based on the proteins that stick themselves to the influenza uh, virus. And this is called the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase. Today, flu viruses are named through the well word 
Today, flu viruses are named through World Health Organization conventions. And the name is usually an amalgam of the type of antigen, so the type of virus like A, B, C, and D, uh, the host of origin. So how did we get this flu virus? It could be a swine flu, a, an equine flu, or it could be a human host. Where did it come from? The geographical origin is usually something that the World Health Organization will include in the naming of a virus, uh, depending on what that is. And then the strain or the number in that year and the year of, uh, um, and the year of its isolation. So the year that they found that particular strain. Oh, sorry, I'm gonna go back for a second. For influenza A viruses, which is a lot of the influenza that we see normally from year to year, they always use the H and the N versions in parentheses after the name of the virus. So uh, the most common one that you would recognize is H1N1 or something like H5N1. So to put the Spanish influenza epidemic into context, in 1918, when the world's most virulent strain of the flu began to work its way throughout the world, 40% of the world's population was sickened by the disease, and an estimated 50 million people died as a result. The world had relatively recently, within about 20 years, so 20 years earlier, had already experienced a major flu epidemic in 1890. And after the Spanish influenza outbreak in 1918 had experience, has experienced three other major influenza epidemics since that time. There was the Asian influenza epidemic in 1957, the 1968 Hong Kong influenza, and the 2009 H1N1 epidemic. On a yearly basis, it's estimated that 0.008% of the world population dies as a result of influenza. Influenza epidemics are not isolated to the last couple of centuries. The world has had centuries of experience with seasonal epidemics of influenza or what has been guessed to be influenza. And these have helped to inform decision-making around community health for decades and centuries. Let's take a look at the four most recent uh, influenza epidemics in uh, the last couple hundred years. So, Let's start at the 1890 epidemic, which is uh, kind of attached and connected to the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic as well. In 1890, there was the Russian or Asiatic flu, and it was caused by an H3NX virus. And it began on the Eurasian steppes, uh, spread across Russia and Europe, and arrived in Northeastern North America in December, 1889. By 1890, it had reached Canada, including the cities of Montreal, Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, London, Winnipeg, and Vancouver. Although less lethal than the 1918 Spanish flu, some experts believe that exposure to the 1890 flu made patients more susceptible to severe outcomes, including death, during the 1918 pandemic. The theory centers around something that the experts call uh, original antigenic sin, which suggests that uh, with rapidly changing viruses like the flu, because it mutates fairly regularly, the body might rely on antibodies developed in response to an earlier strain, thus compromising exposure to the, uh, or the response to the new virus. 
And then of course there's the Spanish flu in 1918, which we'll get back to, but we're gonna skip past that for now to 50 years after the Spanish flu epidemic, uh, the 1957 Asian flu, also known as Oriental flu struck. It's believed to have orig originated in Northern China in February, 1957. It hit Canada in the fall of that year, forcing the closure of schools, public gathering places, and eventually killing an estimated 2000 people. By the time it had run its course in the spring of 1958, this strain had claimed an estimated 2 million lives worldwide, making it the second most fatal flu pandemic in history. And then a decade later, the Hong Kong influenza pandemic began in 1968 in Southeast Asia. It was dubbed the Hong Kong flu as the outbreak there was the first to garner the attention of the Western media. Caused by an H3 N2 subtype, the virus had the same N protein as the 1957 pandemic virus, but a different H protein. As a result, the virus's impact varied depending on the region, as certain people were immune to at least part of the virus. The Hong Kong flu caused somewhere between one and four million deaths worldwide uh, and an estimated 4,000 deaths in Canada. And then of course, most of you will remember the 2009 H1N1 flu virus. The H1N1 flu virus was first reported in Mexico in February, 2009. It was re initially referred to as the swine flu. The virus had never been seen before in either animals or humans, but was thought to be most closely related to influenza viruses found in pigs in North America and Eurasia. Later scientists discovered that in addition to elements of North American and Eurasian swine flu, the virus also contained aspects of North American bird and human influenza. On the 26th of April, 2009, Canada's public health agency reported its first case of H1N1. By the 11th of June, 2009, 74 countries had con laboratory confirmed cases of the virus and the World Health Organization announced a pandemic. Unlike the seasonal flu common during the winter, many Canadians contracted H1N1 during the summer months. A second wave of the virus followed in the winter of 2009. However, by January 2010, the Public Health Agency had de-escalated its response to the pandemic. By July 2010, more than 200 countries or territories reported cases of the virus. More than 18,000 people were confirmed to have died from H1N1 worldwide, with 428 from Canada. However, estimates based on statistical models have put the actual number of deaths worldwide in the hundreds of thousands. I think it's really important to be able to put into context all of these pandemics that we've had over the last uh, century and a half or so, just to kind of give us a grounding in how the Spanish flu fits within that context. And because of these regular outbreak breaks of influenza, scientists rely on past evidence and modeling to devise response strategies to emerging strains and disease threats. Even up to the middle of the 20th century, the transmission of disease was not clearly understood. There were two primary competing theories of disease transmission in 1918 when the Spanish flu broke out. There was the miasma theory and the newer germ theory. 
Miasma theory suggests that disease was caused by bad air that came from decay and dirt. Hold on one second, some technical difficulties. Okay, let's go back. Miasma theory suggested that disease was caused from bad air that came from decay and dirt. According to this theory, disease was not passed from person to person through contact, but happened when someone was exposed to bad air or miasmas in their environment. Germ theory, while it had been around for a long time, was not a popular scientific theory until the middle of the 19th century. At that time, a British scientist named John Snow, who was studying the cholera epidemic in London, England, suggested that the disease itself was caused by human-to-human -human transmission and through feces-contaminated water. While Snow's research was groundbreaking and succeeded in saving lives, the new germ theory that he was proposing still took a long time to catch hold and, be and to become accepted by the majority of scientists. Germ theory continued to, be more, to become more popular within scientific communities, but was not fully accepted as the predominant theory until well into the 20th century. The discovery of the electron microscope in 1926 would help lead the way to a better understanding of how diseases work. Prior to this, scientists were not even able to see the flu virus under a regular microscope, and so continued to speculate and theorize on transmission vectors and therapies for diseases as they occurred. Looking at the history of disease in Canada, legislation related to public health in Canada can be traced back as early as 1707, when some of the earliest sanitary laws were passed in New France. And these kind of went along with this miasma theory. And this is kind of a great picture with the Grim Reaper and his miasmas in the background. Um, these bits of legislation were aimed to clean up streets and homes and renew, remove noxious gases from cities, going back to the uh, predominant miasma theory of disease control. From the early 18th century, and even up to the outbreak of Spanish influenza in Canada, the primary line of defense for keeping infectious diseases out of the country was quarantine. Essentially, ships arriving in Canada from other countries were required to anchor offshore and wait for inspection by physicians who were trained to recognize infectious diseases. These ships were required to remain at least two kilometers offshore and to hoist a special flag to request inspection. Breaking these regulations was a serious offense and ship captains could be subject to the death penalty for concealing disease on board their ships. One of the most feared epidemic diseases of the 19th century was cholera. And this disease and its impact shapes, shaped Canada's early efforts at public health policy. Asiatic cholera was a terrifying disease that killed as many as half of those who were infected. While today we know that cholera is spread by drinking water contaminated by fecal matter, in the 19th century, doctors were still not able to see bacteria under a microscope and so did not understand how the disease was spread. 
As mentioned earlier, the most popular theory was that the cholera was being spread by clouds of miasma or bad smells that were emanating from garbage and decay in the sewers and slums of overcrowded cities like Montreal, which is the, um, the subject of this particular uh, cartoon that you see on the screen now. Cholera reached Canada in, in, in 1832. The first line of defense for the colony was quarantine. And in response, in 1832, the country's first quarantine station was set up on Grosse Ile, Quebec. To pay the costs of this measure, a new tax was imposed on immigrants as they were seen as the, the uh, primary carriers of the disease. In reality, it was the poorer immigrants who bore the brunt of the 30-day quarantine uh, on Grosil. Wealthier immigrants who came on the ships and who were perceived to be cleaner uh, were frequently allowed to just continue on their journey without a medical check. For this reason, quarantine in Canada continued to be ineffective uh, throughout the cholera epidemic. By the time the first cholera epidemic subsided, more than 6,000 people had died from the disease in Canada. Canada began to develop a plan as a result of the cholera epidemic with a two-pronged strategy for dealing with epidemic diseases in Canada. One was quarantine, which we'd already heard about, and then sanitary reform. The first prong, which is actually the sanitary reform was the responsibility of local governments whose primary responsibility was to make sure that uh, they were charged with working with their communities to discourage dirt and poor sanitary practices such as cleaning up slums and garbage piles and developing improved sanitary infrastructure such as indoor plumbing uh, and sewers. In early Canada, there was a perception that Canada was a landscape of fresh, uh, fresh air, wide open, clean spaces. Uh, it was imagined that diseases must be coming from somewhere outside the country because it was such a great place to be and it was so fresh. Uh, to this end, immigrants were seen as the carriers of these dirty and exotic diseases. After all, how else would disease have arrived in the country other than with immigrants? Even up to the outbreak of the Spanish flu, there was a perceived link between immigrants and disease Discrimination and violence against foreigners was common. This type of behavior was especially prevalent in times of crisis, such as pandemic outbreaks of disease. Leading up to and even after 1918, the government passed legislation to exclude specified immigrant groups, for example, Chinese immigrants and Eastern Europeans, among others. This attitude, both in government and white society, was common and partly in response to the fear of disease that these immigrants might be carrying with them. So let's talk a bit about, now let's talk about the Spanish flu. Now that we've got our background in, uh, you know, all the pandemics we've seen and then where public health was leading up to by the time we get to 1918. So we'll talk about the Spanish flu and where did that come from and why was it different? The first reported cases of what became known as Spanish influenza were seen in the spring of 1918 in Madrid, Spain. Spain had remained neutral during the First World War, so its news, news media outlets uh, continued reporting without censoring information that might cause widespread panic among the populace. 
most of the combatant countries during the First World War censored their news sources to be able to maintain order. Spanish news agencies were reporting, and I quote, a strange form of disease of epidemic character. Cases of this disease were relatively mild, but were clearly epidemic and symptomatic of a flu, including lack of appetite, headache, and pain between the eyes, high temperature, aching bones, and extreme lethargy. The disease spread across the world and started to become known as the Spanish influenza, since it seemed to have first appeared in Spain. As it turns out, the disease had already appeared prior to this in American military camps, most notably Fort Riley, Kansas. This early form of the disease, which appeared in the spring, had yet to mutate to its final deadly form. By the fall of 1918, a new form of influenza was spreading. This time the disease had mutated to become more deadly and more virulent. Symptoms of this new flu virus included severe breathing difficulties, a rapid heartbeat and palpitations, coughing, and most bizarre was that sufferer's skin color began to change color due to the lack of oxygen uh, and turned blue, which is known as cyanosis. Other symptoms included severe inflamed eyes, nose, and throat, intense headache and cough, and overwhelming feelings of tiredness, severe aches and pains, and high temperatures. Many patients contracted pneumonia as a result of the Spanish influenza, which had no cure in the era before antibiotics. And just to give you the context on that, the first antibiotics were discovered in 1929, but it wasn't until the early 1940s that large-scale use of antibiotics became common. The most notable thing about influenza was that it killed an unusual number of young adults. This was because this particular strain of the virus infected lung cells and led to an overstimulation of a patient's immune system, which released cytokines into the lung tissue. This then leads to an intensive leukocyte migration uh, towards the lungs, causing the destruction of lung tissue and the buildup of fluid in the, uh, in the lungs, making it difficult for patients to breathe. Research belie researchers believe that those who were healthier to start with put up too strong an immune defense, which actually caused damage to their bodies as it tried to fight off the disease. Essentially, healthy people would create what is called a cytokine storm, which is an overdrive of the immune system, which attacks healthy cells. Notwithstanding Canada's efforts at keeping disease out, the fact that the government was fully deployed to fighting a major world war hampered efforts at quarantine. Public health relations did not apply to military mobilization and the disease was able to travel across the country with soldiers returning to the front and also with new recruits being shipped overseas. Particularly troublesome was the mobilization in Canada of the Canadian Siberian Expeditionary Force who were sent to Russia at the end of the war to assist during the Russian Revolution and to try to keep Russia in the war. Essentially soldiers were shipped from the east coast of Canada all the way across Canada to the west coast uh, and deployed out to the uh, Siberian Expedition Force from the west coast. Soldiers recruited for this campaign traveled across Canada just at the height of the Spanish influenza pandemic in the fall of 1918 and spread the disease from city to city as their train traveled west across the country. 
as soldiers who were already infected became sick and were hospitalized in communities across the prairies, they spread the disease with them. Also, as soldiers were demobilized at the end of the war, they returned to communities all across Canada, spreading disease as they went. Sadly, soldiers of the Great War were not immune to the effects of the Spanish flu, and men who had just spent potentially four years fighting in the Great War would succumb to the disease as they looked forward to returning to their families. One local example is this gentleman here in the slide, Private Charles Eberhardt, whose memorial appeared in the St. Catherine Standard on November 15th, 1918, and who died of the Spanish influenza in France only a few weeks before the end of the war. The city of St. Catharines, of course, did not come through the Spanish flu epidemic untouched. It's difficult to know the total number of cases in the community, as many people were treated in their homes rather than institutional settings. Additionally, influenza was not considered a reportable disease from the perspective of the Board of Health uh, prior to the 1918 flu pandemic. In order to accommodate additional flu cases, also quarantine hospitals were opened in the city. The Welland House Hotel that you can see here in this slide uh, converted, it's located on the corner of Ontario Street, um, converted its private maternity hospital, the Wellandra, into a quarantine hospital in order to provide more room for serious flu cases. Other quarantine wards were established in the convalescent hospital in the former Merritt home and in St. John's Church in Port Dalhousie. Additionally, Ridley College had just recently opened a new isolation hospital for its students. Many students were taken care of in that isolation hospital. And while all the stricken students survived the disease, a school nurse, Ms. Bush, and a school master, Mr. H.J. Flynn, both, survived, both succumbed to the outbreak at the time. The flu so stretched the resources of the General and Marine Hospital that they had to close to general patients from September 30th to October 15th, 1918. The hospital reported that they had to take on extra graduate nurses and loaned equipment from the Welland Canal Hospital in order to reopen. The severity of the epidemic would test the ability of the local Board of Health to respond to this type of crisis and public health in Canada developed significantly in direct response to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. In 1918, St. Catharines had a population of about 19,189. The annual report of the uh, uh, St. Catharines Board of Health appeared in the St. Catharines Standard on November 20th, 1918, very early on in the epidemic. The report notes that, and I quote, until the outbreak of epidemic influenza early last month, the health of the city and the death rate per thousand of the population was about the average as, as observed during the past few years. The report goes on to note that influenza pneumonia deaths shows, show a very large percentage of the deaths in that year and estimates that the city suffered from approximately a thousand cases of influenza in 1918 alone, with more than a month and a half to go until the end of the year. Of those, the Board of Health reported only 61 deaths as of November 1918. 
this death rate is far lower than the, than the general population in Canada that was reporting up to 50% mortality in some communities. Even in 1918, the Board of Health recognized the need for an isolation hospital in the community. The experience of the past month has fully demonstrated the necessity of an isolation hospital suitable to the demands of a growing city. What was considered sufficient 10 years ago cannot meet the service required today. In the near future, epidemic diseases of all kinds will be added to those which boards of health are now required to provide for, and such diseases will be excluded from general hospitals as is now being urged in some cities. That was a quote from the St. Catharines Board of Health annual report. However, that prediction did not come to pass. Uh, in the end, the city did not build a separate isolation hospital. By the end of the deadliest flu outbreak in the spring of 1919, the city had lost almost as many local citizens to the flu as had died in the First World War, somewhere around 250 to 300 men. We don't have a very uh, good, accurate number. And to put that in context, total get deaths in Canada from the Spanish flu was approximately 55,000, which is roughly the same number as men, of men as died in the First World War. This photo that you can see here on the slide is a soldier in front of Oak Hill, which is the Merritt home, today the home of CKTV. Uh, Catherine Wellen Merritt donated her home as a convalescent home for returned soldiers who were stricken by the flu and who continued to nurse wounds from the war. So let's talk about how the Spanish flu uh, stacks up to, I'll move this over just a tiny bit. Um, stacks up to uh, other epidemics over the years. Through popular culture, most people have heard of epidemics such as the plague. And I thought it would be interesting to give you a comparator of how the 1918 Spanish influenza stacked up against other epidemics over the centuries. As we've already heard, the Spanish influenza pandemic killed more than 50 million people worldwide. That was approximately one fifth of the population at the time, which was of course a huge blow. The only other current epidemic disease uh, rampant in the world today, other than COVID-19, um, is AIDS, which has killed 32 million people worldwide since its outbreak. AIDS continues to be considered an epidemic uh, due to the number of deaths as a result and the number of countries still experiencing outbreaks of the disease. And then, of course, we have some plagues here. I'm going to skip down to the, uh, the Black Death, which you can see as number five on this uh, graph. The Black Death was perhaps the most well-known early plague, uh, and it arrived in Europe around 1347, when 12 ships from the Black Sea docked at the Sicilian port of Messina. Uh, there were a bunch of spectators on the dock who were waiting for the ships and were met with a horrible surprise that most of the sailors aboard the ships were dead and those who were still alive were gravely ill and covered in black boils uh, that were oozing pus and blood. Sicilian authorities hastily ordered the fleet of death ships out of the harbor but it was too late and over the next five years or slightly more, around almost 10 years, uh, the Black Death would kill more than 20 people, 20 million people in Europe, almost a third of the continent's population. Overall across the world, it's estimated that the plague killed somewhere between 75 and 200 million people. The worst of the Black Death plague occurred from 1343 to 1353, 
But surprisingly, you may be surprised to hear that the uh, plague continues to appear in the world. It appeared almost every generation after uh, 1353, uh, but it has never been uh, completely eradicated in the world. Because the Spanish flu appeared so rapidly and there was no known cure or treatment, quack cures and home remedies were popular in the hopes that something would work by putting the body's natural humors back in order. People believed that their bodies were balanced by four humors which corresponded with the elements, fire, air, earth, and water. A person got sick when one or more of their humors were out of balance and the cure was often tied to which humor seemed to be uh, out of whack. Patent medicines were over-the-counter drugs that advertised their curative powers, whether they had any scientific proof of success or not. In 1918-19, there was no legislation that prevented these companies from making outrageous claims for their products. Some patent medicines had zero medicinal ingredients at all, while others might include things that were potentially toxic. Hopefully you got the zero medicinal ingredients. In addition to no medicinal products, sorry, in addition to medicinal products, advertisers claimed outrageous ways to cure the flu, such as eating raw onions or dressing a patient in wet clothes and putting them in a really cold room with all the windows open so that they would shiver the flu out of their body. This picture that you can see on the screen now appeared in the St. Catherine Standard on October 31st, 1918. And it was part of an ad for Dr. Chase's nerve food, which was a very popular patent medicine at the time. And it was uh, purported to help Jack get his vigor back. Um, and during the worst of the Spanish flu pandemic, the St. Catherine Standard was filled with all kinds of advertisements for all kinds of cures, including tons of ads for Dr. Chase's nerve food. During the peak of the Spanish flu pandemic, the local hospital was overwhelmed and could not handle the number of patients needing medical care. Most patients were cared for in their homes, as I mentioned earlier. Doctors and nurses made house calls to patients' homes, and the St. Catherine's Emergency Hospital Auxiliary, the Sisters of Service, was formed to assist the Board of Health in the influenza epidemic. They provided home care, including preparing and delivering broth to those too sick to cook for themselves. The need for nursing care was so high that student nurses, nurses from the Mac Nursing School were called upon to assist and were pushed through their training early in order to be ready to provide professional assistance. Similar to frontline workers today with the COVID-19 pandemic, these nurses, health workers, and doctors put themselves at great risk going into the homes of those infected, and many were stricken with the Spanish flu while doing their work. Today, the government of Canada is very proactive when it comes to flu management and flu activity in Canada. And they do this through a monitoring program called Flu Watch. Throughout the flu season, Flu Watch provides weekly updates on influenza and influenza-like activity around the country. And they use a network of labs, doctor's offices, and provincial ministries of health in order to help identify the flu signals, respond to epidemics, contribute the evidence based uh, 
the evidence necessary to plan, develop, and implement public health policy to be able to control influenza epidemics and all epidemics actually, and to support national infrastructure for um, being able to provide response to pandemics. Interestingly, over the course of 200 years, researchers have been studying the virology of influenza with a view to finding a way to prevent the disease or to reduce its severity in sufferers. One challenge has been that there is no way, there was no way in 1918 to even see the flu and to preserve live bacteria for any length of time. So there was really no refrigeration to be able to keep the bacteria from, uh, from dying off once it's been cultured out of a, a person. Attempts have been made for many years to try and preserve uh, tissue infected with Spanish flu, but none of their efforts were successful in preserving an entire genetic code until the 1990s when scientists were able to exhume the body of a woman in an Inuit village near Brevig Mission, Alaska. Her body had remained frozen in the permafrost and live flu-infected tissue was able to be recovered. Researchers were finally able to recreate the entire Spanish flu DNA sequence in 2005, nearly a hundred years after the, uh, the Spanish flu pandemic. And this really did help to understand many facets of how the Spanish influenza worked. But Spanish flu continues to be a mystery to flu researchers. Scientists studying the virus in 2005 determined that it's likely to be likely to be derived from a bird flu strain, but they've not been able to pinpoint how the disease mutated to become one of the most devastating single disease outbreaks in modern history. We really hope you enjoyed the lecture. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us via our social media channels or at museum at If you enjoyed the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Give us a call at 905-984 8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Next time on VMLS via podcast, open for business, the Welland Canal in 1830.